If you have Bibles with you, do keep them open at that passage, and um, we will be looking at these verses. Sometimes chapter divisions in the Bible are very helpful, and sometimes they're not so helpful. And when Peter wrote this letter, like all the letters of the New Testament, like all the books of the Bible, there were no chapter divisions. Peter wrote one continuous letter without thinking in terms of chapters and verses. And the fact that this reading straddles the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, might make us think, well, of course, Peter is beginning some brand new section in chapter 2. Well, he doesn't really seem to be. Uh, The section we've read is really one clear section. And what is it that lies at the heart of this section? What is the main standout verse or, or statement that we have in these verses? Well, I think we find it in verse 23 of chapter 1, in these five words. You have been born again. That's it. You have been born again. And what I want to do this evening is to look at this subject of the new birth in these three ways. First of all, the new birth declared. And then the new birth described. And finally, the new birth demonstrated. So first of all, the new birth is declared. And here is Peter in chapter 1, verse 23, writing to these readers, You have been born again. There's little doubt that as Peter writes these words, he's remembering the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus to Nicodemus. Do you remember how Nicodemus came to Jesus by night? Read about this in John chapter 3. And Jesus says to him these, these unforgettable words. He says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then later on, he says, verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And Peter maybe some 30 years later after those words were first spoken by Jesus, is remembering them as he writes here and as he's written back in verse 3 of chapter 1. According to God's great mercy, he has caused us, us Christians, to be born again. It's no exaggeration to say that the new birth is front and center of Peter's faith. And the new birth is front and center of all true Christian faith. Let me put it to you like this. If any church or preaching or teaching ministry is a little bit reluctant about mentioning the new birth, is rather coy and rather cagey about really shouting out to people, you must be born again, there are questions to be asked about the reality 
of that ministry as to whether it is Christian or not. I would go so far as to say that the new birth is true Christian faith. This is the real thing. This is real Christianity, that a soul is born again. If I am to be a faithful preacher of Jesus Christ, then I need to preach on the new birth. Not occasionally, not once every five years, not once every year even, but frequently. Why? Let me put it to you like this. Being born again is the most radical and transforming experience that can ever happen to any human being. Possibly alongside that is being born for the first time. Okay? That's quite radical and transforming, isn't it? Being born? Wouldn't you say so, Micah? You're closest to that event. Maybe you can tell us a bit about that. I'm sure your mum can as well. Anyway, the date of our birth is the day we entered this world. It marked the beginning of our life in this world as an identifiable individual. Somebody with a name. Somebody with a visible and independent appearance. Every one of us, one day, were born It was a day of rejoicing. It was a day of public good news for our families and our friends. It's the date we put on forms or tell the doctor's surgery when we want to identify ourselves, name and date of birth. It was a great day for us. When we were born, we left the closed and dark confines of our mother's wombs and we saw her face instead. For the first time, we breathed the air of a free world that we could see and touch and smell and taste and begin to enjoy and understand for the first time. Being born is radical. Being born is a new thing. And so is being born again. It is just as radical. It is just as transforming in the spiritual realm. I thank and praise God that Thirty plus years ago when I first began to move among Christians and began to inquire about the Christian faith, this message, you must be born again, was communicated with urgency and frequency. You must be born again. Thirty years ago we used to sing at almost every Christian meeting that chorus, I am a new creation. No more in condemnation. Here in the grace of God I stand. As often as we sing today, what do we sing today? In Christ alone. (laughs) Similar hymns like that. I remember going to meetings where the message was said and it was simple. You might say very simple but very profound and very powerful. This man saying to me and to many others, becoming a Christian is not a new start to life. It's a new life to start. That's right. You must be born again. And let me say that to every one of you, in case it's kind of drifted out of your minds. You must be born again. Unless you are born again, you cannot enter 
into the kingdom of God. You must be born again. That is the new birth declared as Peter declares it. But Peter goes on and he now secondly describes it. And we continue in verse 23 of chapter 1. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. How is the new birth different to your first birth? Well, here's the difference. When every child is born naturally and biologically, they are born of perishable seed. Perishable. It's going to perish. But when every soul is reborn spiritually, they are born of imperishable seed. That's the big difference that Peter highlights here. It's huge. Because here is a universal principle, first of all, of everything in biology. Biology is all about perishable things, isn't it? In this world, in this life, everything which is sown, sown in the ground, that is, everything which germinates, everything which is conceived, everything which is born, it has at its heart what we might call a principle of corruption, a principle of being perishable. Everything in this world of plants and animals and human beings and every kind of life form that we know about is one day going to decay, is one day going to become corrupted and degraded and wither and die. And that's why Peter particularly quotes here from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 and 8. All flesh is like grass. All flesh. The flesh of human beings like you and me. The flesh of animals. The flesh of lower creatures. Even if you like, the flesh, if you can call it that, of, of trees and plants. The flesh of flowers. Flowers don't have flesh. They have, they have a different kind of substance, but you know what he's saying here. All flesh is like grass. The grass withers. The flower falls. In a few weeks' time, we'll be in the full bloom of springtime. We're getting there soon, aren't we? Whatever else may be going on all around us, spring is still coming. And there'll be bluebells and primroses and buttercups and all these lovely flowers and there's already tulips in the fields and parks and gardens and woods and they will be beautiful and fragrant for a while won't they but then another autumn will come come october november they'll all be gone withered and fallen because they're perishable and that's true of human beings as well the zygote the fertilized embryo is conceived by perishable seed decay and corruption are already at work young strong people in this world are perishable Isaiah goes on to say at the end of chapter 40 
Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. Men and women who are sporting heroes, they'll grow old, they'll grow tired, they'll grow weary, they'll grow sick. You can read the life story of a great hero like Eric Liddell, the the Scottish Olympic champion, the the Paris 1924 400-metre champion, chariots of fire and all of that. What a man he was. What an amazing athlete he was at the age of 23, 24. But move forward 20 years to 1944, and there he is in a Japanese prisoner of war camp, succumbing to nervous breakdown, overwork, malnourishment, brain tumor, and he's finished, and he's gone from this world at the age of just 43. The grass withers, the flower falls, we're all perishable, your human life is perishable, you may be very young, you think I've got, I'm indestructible, I'm I'm invincible, no one can harm me, I'm I'm strong, I'm fit, I've never had a day's ill health in my life, not yet. Well, we are all perishable. But there is a seed that is imperishable. There is a birth that is imperishable, says Peter. And it is this. It is the living and abiding word of God. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. When a soul is born again, it's all so wonderfully different. It's by imperishable seed. If you become a Christian, an entirely new, different, better principle of life is implanted within you. There's a new kind of seed And this seed is not corrupt, it's not perishable, it's not liable to decay, it's pure, it's untainted, it's indestructible, it's eternal. And how does it happen? Peter tells us how it happens. Again at the end of verse 23, it is through the living and abiding word of God. That's how this seed is sown. You remember the parable of the sower. Our Lord Jesus says, the sower sows the word. The word comes. And the word comes with the power of the Holy Spirit. And the word comes in a way that saves people. That brings people to life. That gives them new birth. What happened to these people that Peter's writing to in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia? They heard the living and abiding word of God in such a way that it penetrated their hearts, it entered their minds, it changed their wills, it gave them new life. New life took root in them. They heard the good news, they heard the gospel, they heard about a man called Jesus. 
And they didn't only hear about him and say, that's interesting, interesting history, interesting facts, interesting theories. No, this word came to them in such a way that their hearts were stirred, their eyes were opened, and they saw and they believed and they came out, as it were, like a newborn child blinking into a new world of new light. A new seed had taken root in them, better, bigger, longer, lasting, imperishable, not like the perishable seed. And that's what happens in every new birth. Sometimes some Christians say, I don't remember that happening to me. Are you saying there was a, there was a particular day and an occasion when I first was born again, I don't remember it. And for some, some of us here who were raised in Christian homes, that may well be an issue. You don't remember the day you were born again. I'm not sure I remember the exact day necessarily that I was born again. But here is the question. Do you now here tonight understand that Jesus Christ is the only Savior who can deliver you from sin and from death and from hell? And that you have seen that you cannot save yourself and you're not good enough. And you need a new heart and a new birth. You need the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse you. That is the question. His word is that imperishable seed to take root in your heart. If you or I are true Christians, if we're born again, it's only for this reason. The indestructible incorruptible, imperishable seed of God's word has taken root in us, in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. That's the new birth described. It's an imperishable seed. But I have one more thing I want to say tonight about the new birth. How is this new birth demonstrated? How do we know it's happening? What does it look like? What's the evidence of it? Well, indeed, we go back a verse to verse 22 at this point. Read verse 22 with me. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Do you see the link? Do you see the relationship? The imperishable seed of the new birth must give rise to pure and sincere love from the hearts of those who are born again. What is the character of this imperishable seed? It's God's seed. It's holy seed, it's heavenly seed, it's gracious seed, it's loving seed, it's pure, untainted, undefiled seed. And when it takes root in the heart of a man, woman, boy or girl, it shows that it's genuine by replicating that same character in the hearts and lives of those who have been born again by that seed. I'll put it as simply as I can. A pure seed will produce a pure heart. 
If the seed that is sown is pure and incorruptible, then the crop that will grow will be pure and incorruptible. How is this shown? Well, Peter tells us it's seen in the love that believers have for one another as believers because they are believers. What is, perhaps from the evidence of the New Testament, the number one test to demonstrate that a soul is really born again of God? It's this. That Christian soul loves other Christian souls simply because they are Christians. Not because they're likable or attractive or wealthy or good-looking or fun to be with or young or old or clever or anything like that, but because they are fellow believers born of the same imperishable seed. And the Apostle John says exactly the same thing in his first letter, chapter 3, verse 14. And he says this, We know that we have passed out of death into life. How? We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters by implication. Whoever does not love abides in death. He also says in chapter 2 and verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. This is the clear biblical proof of genuine Christian regeneration. How do you know that When someone says they're born again, or you're asking if they're born again, well, how might we know? Well, here is is one great test, says the Bible. Do they love fellow Christians? Do they love their brothers and sisters? Verse 22 is all about this love. Do you notice how in verse 22 you've got both brotherly love and love? having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now you might have a question. Is there a difference between brotherly love and simply love? Are they different things? And the answer, it seems from this text, is no, they're not different things. They're looked at in in different ways. Brotherly love tells us who we love. We love the brotherhood. We love the family of God. We love the household of God. But that word love, the word agape in the Greek, brotherly love, by the way, is uh, the Greek word philadelphia. Philadelphia, brotherly love. Love, agape, tells us how we are to love. It's the quality of our love. It's It's the strength of our love. It's the extent of our love. And look at how Peter describes in just two ways what this love is like. We're looking at this quality of this love. Because as I say, this love is the mark of a child of God. Love for one another. He talks, first of all, about a sincere brotherly love. What does that mean? It means a love that is pure. 
a love that is unfeigned. The literal meaning, the literal Greek is unhypocritical. We talk about a love that is sincere. The word sincere in English comes from the Latin. It comes from a word that means without wax. And the idea there is, you imagine you buy a jar of honey. Sometimes you get that very kind of thick, opaque honey, don't you, that's kind of thick and you can't see through it. But then you get that very clear honey, don't you, where you can see light through the honey. It's a golden, translucent kind of honey. You know the kind I'm talking about. Well, Peter is saying our love should be like that. No hidden, murky, cynical, selfish motives in our love for the brothers and sisters. Not using people for our own selfish gain. Not showing people some kind of kindness half-heartedly reluctantly, not saying to their faces how much we love them and then gossiping about them when their backs are turned a bit later on. No, love of the same kind as the love that God has for us. Let me say this. We can never love to the same degree that God has loved us, can we? We can never love to that degree. Of course we can't begin to. And yet, Our love for one another as brothers and sisters should be love of the same kind. Unfeigned, genuine, unhypocritical, sincere, true. And then the final thing to notice is this. Peter says, love one another earnestly. And that word earnestly has the idea of fervently wholeheartedly. When Peter was in prison, in Acts chapter 12, we read there that earnest prayer was made for him. Can you imagine that prayer meeting? People pouring out their hearts to the Lord in earnest prayer for Peter. Because they loved the Lord, but because they loved Peter as well. This same Peter Fervent love. When we love fervently, we are moved when we see our brother or sister in need. When we love fervently, we want to see our brother or sister restored if they've fallen into temptation or sin. When we love these brothers and sisters the way that the Bible describes, we, we miss them when they are not with us because they are our family. They've been born again just as we have of the same seed. And we love them because the family likeness that is in us is also in them. This is what binds us together. It's not a love that depends on outward circumstances or what people look like or sound like or what their interests are. It's nothing like that. It's not a love that binds people of the same nationality or the same culture. No. It's a love because we love the same gospel. We love the same Jesus. We love the same Bible. We love the same wonderful salvation. 
that they love. And we love them because we know that we are going to be brothers and sisters together forever in all eternity. We are fellow newborn children in Christ. We love our brothers, we love our sisters, even as we love Jesus himself. We might well say we can't all love each other as much as we wish we could. It's not about the quantity of love. It's about the quality of love. It's about the type of love. A sincere love, a fervent love, a genuine love, a real love, a family love, because we, like them, have been born again. We'll pray together. Our Father, you have given us birth of your own will by the living and abiding word, the imperishable seed that is within us. O Lord God, we pray that you would bring to fuller flower in our hearts this sincere brotherly love. Lord, we have a time now to come and bring before you how we have fallen short of that brotherly love. We have omitted to love our brothers and sisters as we should have done. We might have been unkind or unforgiving or critical or uh, ignorant of each other's needs. We might have said things, O Lord, we ought not to have said in anger, in impatience, in irritability. O Lord, we have all fallen far short. But Lord God, you have given us new birth. You've put us together. And this is your work, Lord God. And we pray that our family love would grow as you cause it to grow. Lord, you, we know that you forgive the sins of all who come to you. We know that you restore those who come in confession, in repentance, and that you give us that joy that we are truly yours. Lord, help us to go on through the times that lie ahead that may have many, many struggles that we face. And we pray, Lord God, that what would bind us together would be this sincere brotherly love for one another. Oh, Lord, help us in this. We ask in the name of the one who exemplifies this brotherly love, for he, our elder brother, laid down his life for us. We give you thanks and we pray for your help. In his name. Amen.